Well, today we return to a series in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you would turn there, turn to Exodus chapter 6. Since we're in, uh, since we're in Exodus, I recently rewatched the Prince of Egypt movie and was pleasantly surprised at its decent proximity to the biblical text. Not perfectly so, but significantly so. Some lines in the Prince of Egypt are, are drawn right from the biblical text. Of course, there are some additions. We don't know that Moses was so snarky of a teenager as they portray. We don't know whether he got in any, uh, any violent carriage rides with his brother. Uh, there's much we don't have in the Prince of Egypt that, um, well, there's much in the Prince of Egypt that isn't exactly drawn from the Bible, but you can understand moving from the medium of Scripture to the medium of movie, how that would necessarily be the case. You can also understand the limitations of a two-hour movie. Uh, Forty chapters of text can't all get covered in that amount of time. And so because of where we have been in recent days of the book of Exodus, I was noting particularly around the burning bush and the dialogue that happens between God and Moses about his call uh, for God to use him to, to, to speak to Pharaoh and to, to bring the people out of Egypt. If you've been with us in recent days, you know that that's a, a long discussion in a sense. You know that Moses' reluctance, uh, it's pervasive and persistent. And that's certainly there in in the movie, The Prince of Egypt, but not nearly at the length and with the frequency that we find. You'll remember that Moses had five rounds of questions and objections to God about his call. He said, who am I to do that? He, he asked, what's your name? Should your people ask me for a name? He, he just protested. They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. He, he said he wasn't eloquent. And then the last of these five there on the mountain, he said, please just send someone else. And of course, if you've been with us, you remember that in between each of those, God graciously explains more and reassures and, and adds new promises or even gives a miraculous sign. More than once, God reissued the call to go and explained in more detail what he would say and what would happen and how it would go. And even when Moses finally does go, now with Aaron at his side, and they do go and speak to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, and they say those famous four words, let my people go. Pharaoh's antagonism and resistance is crushing to Moses, along with the people of Israel turning against him since they have a harder labor than before. It's all that Moses can take, even though not much has really taken place. He's offered a couple of sentences to God, uh, sorry, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has mocked this God, said firmly no, made labor harder. And with that, Moses in chapter 5, you might want to just look down, verse 22 and 23, he says to God, why haven't you brought the people out? Why did you even bother sending me? 
You see how reluctant he is and how his reluctance had layers, how it was stubborn. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, Pharaoh won't listen to me. And then our passage for today, chapter 6, verses 14 and following, really answers the accumulated pile of questions and protests that Moses has put to God in these past recent weeks. But it does so in a roundabout way. It does so in a bit of a head-scratching kind of way, like with a genealogy, a genealogy. You can just look down and see it. We'll read it in just a bit, but you can glance and see that chapter 6, verse 14 down to 25 is a genealogy. A genealogy? Why? Why are those in the Bible anyway? And what's this one doing here? It seems like it should be at the beginning of the book, not somewhere in the middle of the narrative. Well, that's a bit of a head-scratcher that we'll talk about today. And I would propose that the genealogy is actually one of at least four different head-scratchers in this passage. Over 20 years ago, our esteemed executive pastor, Ron Giese, edited a book called Cracking Old Testament Codes. And so if I can lean on that title this morning for our sermon title, I think there are certain codes in our passage that need cracking today. Let me see if you can see some for yourself in addition to the genealogy. Follow along as I read chapter 6, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 13. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Emram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nishan. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asur, Elkanah and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. 
on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses. In the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the, magici the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, as I said, there are at least four different codes that will need cracking from this passage. The first and the third will take a little bit longer than the other two. Here's the first. We could call it appreciating biblical genealogies. Appreciating biblical genealogies, something that's not quite easy to do. And never mind biblical genealogies, ge genealogies of any kind really don't have much interest for most of us, unless you recently got interested in Ancestry.com and looking some things up, or perhaps you have a, a really old Bible in the family with the family tree in there, and, and you, you know it, you're thankful for it. But if you start telling your friends about that, they're not going to be all that interested, are they? If you start talking about the great, 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 great uncle that you found and discovered in France, well, your friends might be polite, but they're not interested. They're just not. And when it comes to the Bible's genealogies, many of us feel almost about the same. These are strange names hard to pronounce, uh, from a long time ago, this is someone else's family tree, and when we come across them in our Bible reading, well, it's a good opportunity to just leapfrog to the other side of it and press on. Well, let me point out in this genealogy how it starts. It starts with Israel, verse 14. Not the nation, but the person who became the father of the nation. That is Jacob. 
He's the oldest guy in this list, and he's significant because of the promises that were given in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a father, a son, and a grandson. In each case, God reiterated promises to the next generation and even enlarged them. So rather than have the, the triad, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like we've seen already so many times before in Exodus, here we're picking up simply with Isaac, with Israel or Jacob. And notice where this genealogy ends. It ends with Aaron and Moses, verse 26. In fact, their families and their offspring have been unpacked since verse 20. Verse 20 to 26 is all about Aaron and Moses and their families. So from the beginning to, to the end, we can see what's happening here. The message is clear. Aaron and Moses are true Israelites. They, they are recipients of the promise. They are not foreigners. They are not outsiders. The genealogy points us back to the promises of old and reminds us they're coming to fruition. Notice the core or the middle of the genealogy. You see in verse 16, sons of Levi are referenced there. Verse 19 the clans of the Levites. Well, this directs our attention ahead in the story because the Levites become significant later on. They're the priests. Aaron will be the first great high priest. Uh, so Moses and Aaron are of that to be priestly family. They are qualified and credentialed to, to lead, to mediate, to, to go between and to intercede. We also have to keep in mind when Exodus was written. Really, in a book like Exodus, you have two different historical contexts going on. You have, on one level, the events themselves as they're happening with those characters in any given scene. But then you also have to remember that it was written down at a later time probably in the later wilderness wandering years after they're out of Egypt. Moses records these events first and foremost for those people to remind them of the genesis of things, to remind them of the promises of old, to remind them of how it went down in Egypt those fateful days. And so we have to remember that Moses here is probably validating himself to a people later on who will continue to struggle with whether they should trust Moses and Aaron and whether they should follow their lead. And I think putting it here in this passage, it tells us that Moses, the editor and the author, has come to his senses. I think he has now moved from questions and objections to God's plan, to now his own validation uh, to God's people. He's apparently embraced his call as a true Israelite and with Aaron as a Levite. So there's some good purposes here. In fact, if we went digging in the, the verses a little bit more, we could probably find another dozen things of application and significance, which we won't do today today. And all of God's people said, amen. But 
we should remember genealogies are, are not the unfortunate speed bumps of the Bible. Um, if we give a little energy to seeing what's going on, uh, there is gold there. And of course, one big message of any of the genealogies of the Old Testament is how it feeds into Jesus. Jesus. The New Testament begins with two genealogies. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 have genealogies of Jesus. And they trace the ancestry back through Adam and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through people like Aminadab and Nasham and, of course, King David. And, and then it lands on Jesus. He's the end of the, the genealogical street of the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament, only has genealogies for Jesus. Isn't that curious? It's not because they thought... Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Those Old Testament guys were really into genealogies, and we know now we don't have to do that. There's a theological purpose. Now in Jesus, familial belonging is not according to ancestry, but according to faith. There's a sense in which it doesn't matter who your father was in a salvation sort of sense. It matters whether you're in with Jesus or not. And if you're in with Jesus, whoever your father was, however bad he was, however far from the promises your ancestors would have been, in Jesus, your family. That's why in Revelation, more than once, Revelation 3 and 13 and 20, speak of the book of life. The book of life and all of God's people from Old Testament and New Covenant are written down there, not written in pencil, not written and might be blotted out. They're in there. It's the Lamb's book of life because Jesus died for them. Well, secondly, we come to this theme, overcoming uncircumcised lips. That was referenced in verse 12 of chapter 6. Moses says, Pharaoh won't listen to me. I have uncircumcised lips. And then it's again in verse 30. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now for what it's worth, I don't think that this was a conversation that happened twice. I think this is probably a literary device reminding us where we left off before we had this parenthetical thing in the genealogy, it's a literary doubling down to, to remind us where we left off and, and what's moving ahead in, in verses that follow. But, but regardless of the timing, regardless of the number of times Moses may have said this, it's a curious phrase, isn't it? I am of uncircumcised lips? What's it mean? Well, it may mean just what he said back in chapter 4 when he said that he lacks eloquence. There it was literally heavy-tongued. And it may be that Moses had some sort of physical speech impediment, maybe a, a stutter or a lisp or something. But here, uncircumcised lips probably means that and more. There's a spiritual element to it. 
uncircumcised lips. Remember, his son, not long ago, wasn't circumcised, and God was about to kill him for it. So, I think Moses is fully aware of his inadequacies, but he's also painfully aware of his impurity. He's like Isaiah the prophet many years later who would say, I am a man of unclean lips. And the Lord there cleansed his unclean lips and used him. And here in Exodus 6 and on into chapter 7, God finds Moses' inability and his impurity, frankly, somewhat irrelevant. He can, he can overcome those things. He can overcome inability and even impurity. God had already said, I'll be with you when you go to Egypt. He'd already said, I'll tell you what to say. You don't have to be uh, really clever. He also said, Aaron will be with you. And remember, he got an A-plus in speech class. He's good. He'll be the one to speak to Pharaoh. And besides, there'll be these accompanying signs and miracles. And now, in chapter 7, verse 1... Here's this reason. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Ponder the significance of that. Of course, he's not like God in any bad sense or wrong sense, like when the serpent said in the garden, you can be like God. Neither is it that Moses would be God-like because of his own power or his own persuasion or his own impressiveness or effectiveness. That's already been established. In himself, he's not effective, he's not powerful, he's not persuasive. But he will be like God to Pharaoh because he will speak on behalf of God to Pharaoh. For some reason, God chose not to speak to Pharaoh himself directly, but to use a human instrument. For some reason, God chose not to use an angel which wouldn't have any impurities and could get it right just as God wanted, but instead he chose to use a human instrument that was weak and sinful and unsophisticated. His inabilities matter not. Ultimately, his impurities matter not. Not that sin doesn't matter. But Moses' spiritual imperfections do not trump God's power to speak through him. And how ironic it is that here in this context where pharaohs thought themselves to be gods, little old Moses, murderer Moses, fugitive Moses, stammerer Moses, doubting Moses, he will be as God to Pharaoh when he speaks on God's behalf. Isn't there a parallel here once again for what we call the Great Commission, which Josiah was praying for earlier in our service? Remember in Matthew 28 that Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, with this in mind, this was the preface. All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. So go, so, so speak, so make disciples, so baptize and teach them. You do it with his authority, not because we deserve that authority, not because we've earned that authority, but because he's given it as we represent him. First Peter 4 talks about 
Those who speak should speak as though the oracles of God. And 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us being ambassadors on behalf of Christ. God is making his appeal through us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. What a privilege that every Christian has to, in a sense, it could be misunderstood by the world for sure, but in a sense to be God to the world. Only in the sense that we represent God's words to the world. And we don't know what God will do with those words. That's why Paul could tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word in season and out of season. When it looks like it's going to be fruitful and when it doesn't look like it's going to be fruitful, you keep preaching the word. You keep proclaiming. You keep throwing seed on the ground and who knows where God has already tilled and who knows where God would put the seed deep down and who knows where God would bring fruit to grow up. But we know God does that thing and we know God loves to do that and we know God has done it in our own lives if we're Christians. And so how wonderful for us to to represent him to the world in this privileged sense, much like Moses did. Notice in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, that God once again makes it clear exactly what's going to happen. Similar to how he did that in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, here we have another occasion of God emphatically predicting the future. You see the string of you shall, and you shall, and I will, and I will, and they shall. It hasn't happened yet, but it's settled. It's, it's as good as done. And with that, finally, Moses and Aaron respond. Verse 6, they did so, just as the Lord commanded them. It doesn't mean that their struggles are all done. It doesn't mean that they only see with the eyes of faith and not with the eyes of man going forward. But here there's a moment of clarity. God overcame Moses' inadequacies and even his impurities. Oh, and by the way, he was 80. And Aaron was 83. So you silver-haired seniors in here, Take heart. Moses thought that 80 was old because he said in Psalm 90, he wrote Psalm 90, he said 70 is pretty much a given, but then 80, that would be extra. And here he is at that, that silver era of life and his best years for God are still ahead. Thirdly, Let's talk about dissecting the hardened heart. Within that string of you shalls and I wills, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God had already said that back in chapter 4, verse 21. When we were looking at chapter 4 on a Sunday morning, I said back then, We'll get to this. We'll talk about it in more detail later on as it becomes more significant in the story later on. 
Well, today is that later on. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It raises a lot of questions for us, understandably so. Let's start with the data. Let's consider the data. Nineteen times in the book of Exodus, we read something about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Nineteen times. Three of those are future prediction. God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Six times it's stated that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven times we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, which you could say, well, that could go either way. It was just hardened. It was hard. Yeah, but we call this in Hebrew a divine passive. Implied is that God has done it. Something has been done to Pharaoh's heart. It's external. It's been done to him. Implied is that God has done it. In fact, four of those seven divine passives are followed by a phrase like, just as the Lord said. Okay? And then three times of these 19 references, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And that's when we scratch our heads and say, well, which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, let me suggest some missteps by way of theological interpretation. What would be some wrong attempts to reconcile these things? What's not going on here in the book of Exodus? Well, it's not that God merely looked into the future to see what Pharaoh would do, and that's that. God knew. No, it doesn't say he knew It says he would, God will and did harden Pharaoh's heart. It's not that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and then eventually God just sort of put a seal on it. All right, you're hardened, that's it. I hardened your heart because you started to harden your own heart. Well, it just doesn't say that. And it's certainly not that God is evil and does evil and makes people do evil. We have verses for that put in thesis form. God doesn't tempt anyone, he doesn't do evil, and he's not the author of evil. It might help us understand this better if we understand the theological principle that no human being is as sinful as they might otherwise have been apart from God's restraining grace. We know there are different degrees of evil in this world, right? If you started making a list of worst guys in history, you might think of Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot, and we can say, Mother Teresa was a sinner, but not that bad of a sinner. But why? Why is that? Why is a Hitler as bad as he is, and why isn't a Hitler worse than he is? Hitler was famously evil, and he was also famous for his love of German shepherd dogs. He had a dog named Blondie, and when that dog died, he got another German shepherd named Blondie. And he was sort of obsessed with the the loyalty and companionship of dogs, If I'm not mistaken, I I think in the bunker he shot his German shepherd 
so that no bad people would get to it and do it harm. It was a, putting it out of its misery. That is, unless he snuck away to Argentina, as some TV shows now are saying, but I leave that for another time. Whatever good that was there in an Adolf Hitler, and of course it wasn't much. It was there because God kept him from being worse. Think of the language of Romans 1, where Paul says that God gave some people up to their sins. He gave them up. He gave them over to their sins. Bad people want sin. In judgment, God sometimes says, okay, go for it. Imagine that this pulpit is something like a a sin magnet. And it pulls all of us into it. We, we have this tendency to be worse than we are. And we're not worse because God restrains us from it. But had he released us, had he pulled his hands off of us, we would go right into it for more, more sin, more hard-heartedness. God didn't need to inject into a Hitler or to a pharaoh. He didn't need to inject sin from outside. He simply needed to let them go to the instincts of their sin inside. In that sense, there's an active element to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God said he would do it, and he did do it. And there's a passive sense in which God, God gave him over to it. God allowed it to happen And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now I know this still raises some questions. Is that fair? Is that just? How is Pharaoh culpable or responsible or blamable? Well, the Bible insists that he is. The Bible insists that he did sin. He did harden his heart. He did go against God. He refused to listen to God. You might wonder, is my heart hardened? Is that the explanation here? You might say, I'm a bad Christian, or not even a Christian. Maybe God's hardened my heart. Well, maybe, but it's a good sign that you might be wondering. Pharaoh wasn't wondering, who is this God? He had no interest in him. Yeah, so, so seek the Lord while he may be found. Do you want to hear and to heed what God says? Then do it. And if you do it, then thank God for it because it wasn't in you to do it. You might say, well, but still, why? Why, why would God orchestrate things like this? And part of the answer then is mystery. Things we don't know. His thoughts are his thoughts. His mind, that's his mind. Who's known the mind of the Lord or ever been his counselor? But another answer is right there in the text. Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out of bring my people out of Israel, out of, from among them. That's essentially the thesis statement 
for the book of Exodus, that you may know, that they may know. Fifteen times it's variously and similarly stated that you may know, that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So without the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we wouldn't have ten plagues. We'd have less. We'd have less of God on display. Without ten plagues, we don't have a full answer to Pharaoh's earlier question of chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, Pharaoh, he's going to show you in ten lessons, one stage at a time. He's going to show you who he is. Without the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we don't have the drama of this, this competition of sorts between Pharaoh and God, and God wins. Without the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we wouldn't really understand our salvation so well. Romans 9 comments on this very topic of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And there Paul says that God said to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? In part, so that we would be here this morning talking about it, and so that some might be saved by it, saved because of it. Paul goes on in Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? Without the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, without hell, we wouldn't really understand heaven we wouldn't understand what we've been saved from. We'll see that play out even more in days of head as God makes a distinction. Chapter 11, verse 7. God makes himself known and makes it known that he makes a distinction between his people and those who go against him. Now, lastly, we need to be learning the lesson of staffs and snakes Verses 8 to 13. And we'll come back to these verses next week since they are a prelude to the 10 plagues. Uh, it's not a, a first of 11 plagues, really. It's, it's a sign that precedes the plagues. And we read it already, so you know how it goes. Moses and Aaron, as God told them to, went and talked with Pharaoh again. Moses asked for some sort of sign or miracle. Aaron threw down the staff. It became a snake. And Pharaoh got his magicians, asked them to do the same, and they did. And I take that to be satanic power. That's, that's the real dark arts right there. That's, that's not smoke and mirrors and charlatan kind of stuff. Oh, they have power, even satanic power, but not ultimate power. Don't you love verse 12? It's, it's, not, it's not a punchline, but it's an exclamation point. 
Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Not just an added miracle, not just one-upping their miracles, but this is a symbolic miracle saying that, yes, Egypt has power, but God has more. God is about to eat up their power. God is about to win. God is about to triumph. It reminds me of Daniel 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of himself as this giant stone image that people bow down to. Remember, it has feet of clay, though, soft clay. And in his vision, there's another thing of stone. It's a a giant stone bigger than the image, and it topples the image. And Daniel, the prophet, makes it clear That's your kingdom, and that's you. You've exalted yourself, and you look mighty in the eyes of men. You seek worship, and God's going to take it all down. And in that case, Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He responds beautifully. He fell on his face, and he said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God, and truly, your God is the Lord of kings. It reminds me of Luke 20, when Jesus likened himself to a a stone, a cornerstone, rejected by Israel's leaders. And Jesus makes the point that you either stand on him, the cornerstone, or you will stumble on it and you will be crushed by it. God is making a distinction. You either have Jesus, the stone to stand on, or the stone to be crushed by. You either have a Nebuchadnezzar-like response when God speaks and reveals, or you have a Pharaoh-like response. Still, his heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. One thing is certain, this God is not a God to be trifled with. This God is not a God to be ignored or dismissed. Who is the Lord? He's God. And he has made his his name and his ways known in events like this, in record of Scripture, Supremely in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, in his glorious ascension, and in his coming again. God has done these things that you may know that he is the Lord. I pray you do know it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray for those here who perhaps hear and want to heed for the very first time. Perhaps they have come to recognize that your word is true by virtue of these genealogies in which you're handing down promises and bringing them to fulfillment over millennia. Perhaps They would come to confess today, Lord, that you have made yourself known in power and glory. And they don't want to be like those 
who set themselves up against the living God to protect their own crumbling kingdom. We pray, Lord, you would fully make it known. And we pray as Christians, Lord, that you would continue to give us ears to hear and give us wills that want to heed what we have heard. May we afresh stand in awe of all that you've done and all that you are, all that you revealed in your word and all that you've promised about what's ahead. We trust you, we trust it, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.